Welcome, everyone, to Investing for Generational Wealth. Let us dive into the world of expert financial insights and strategies. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. We are not financial advisors. All investments are subject to risks, including the possible loss of the money you invest. So perform your due diligence before making any financial decisions. And of course, consult your CPA and your attorney before beginning investments. I'm your host, Keshav Kalor, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Lai. And welcome to today's episode, Confessions from a Real Estate Broker. Today's guest is Logan Freeman. He's busy doing a lot of stuff, uh, from opening a commercial brokerage to acquiring shopping centers and being the father of three. So I will let him take it away and introduce himself here. Yeah, thank you, Kashav. I appreciate you guys having me on today. Um, You know, thinking through 2023, I've been doing a lot of reflection recently. And one of the questions that we always go through, I have about... 25 to 30 employees now, and many of them directly reporting to me. And so um, we go through what were the what were the top wins of 2023, right? And what came up for me on uh, highlight was, you know, it was it was a it was a volatile commercial real estate market. You know, all of the headlines having said transaction volume down 65, 75, 80%. We've got layoffs at the biggest, you know, brokerages, all of these different things kind of happening. Well, there's a lot of reasons why that is happening, but also uh, one of the biggest wins was, you know, we were able to still, you know, hit our numbers in regards to transaction volume. And I had to really ask why, because it wasn't by luck, um, you know, or by happenstance. Here's what happened. In commercial real estate, the deal makers still shone through. The paper pushers really got weeded out, meaning you had to work twice as hard for a transaction in 2023 than you maybe did in 2022 or 2021 to get maybe even a less of a payoff. And so I think that what it's done to the industry, and I'm always looking for you know, on equilibrium in a marketplace, right? So we can actually transact and forecast and and understand what's going on is I think a lot of the easy money players got weeded out of the commercial real estate industry in 2023. I think that continues in 2024. But one of the highlights being that we were able to connect and do a decent amount of, of real estate brokerage work still in 2023 in one of the most difficult environments, lending environments, and, and we had to adapt pivot our strategies and really work really difficult, you know, really diligently with uh, our buyers and our, our sellers to be able to get those transactions across the board. Because even if someone had the equity for a transaction, you still have to go line up debt in 2023. And the banks were not lining up like they had previously in, in different years. And so uh, I'm, I'm really proud to say that we we had a decent year, uh, even with transaction volumes being down. And I think that's because we were willing to really work as an advisor and a consultant in the space instead of just a, you know, a uh, transactional type of person that is just going to list a property and, and hope that people, you know, call and, and make offers. That's just not what happened in 2023. Okay. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot to dig into there. And definitely the part about how you guys are, you know, crushing it despite the challenges the market's throwing at you. Let's start off with maybe your background in real estate. Like, you know, walk me just through, you know, even if you had a career before real estate, how you got into it and how you got to where you are today. 
Absolutely. You know, grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri, which is the capital of Missouri. Most folks don't know that. They usually say St. Louis or Kansas City. Now, I am based in Kansas City now, but Jefferson City is a small town right in the middle of the state. And, uh, you know, when I was 14 years old, I wanted to figure out how to start making money. And when you're 14 years old, you don't have a whole lot of options. But growing up in a farm town, you do have one option, and that is to go throw hay on the back of a trailer uh, for money in the hot summer, you know, summers. And so uh, that's what I did. And, you know, I, I going into freshman year, we had a we had a class called personal finance in my freshman year and you know it was dave ramsey focused so financial freedom or personal finance freedom or you know finance university or whatever it is called uh financial peace university or something like that and so you know i i decided to open up a roth ira because that's what you know i was supposed to do so i was you know 15 years old opening up a roth ira uh, with the money that had been made uh, and i remember the you know financial advisor sitting across the the table for me saying you know if you just continue to add to this when you're 60 years old here's what the number is going to be um, needless to say i have not taken that same approach you know going forward i've learned a lot uh, since then but I was a collegiate athlete, so I played uh, football in college and had a good career and was able to uh, transition that to the NFL. And, um, you know, I was uh, with the Oakland Raiders for a bit and, and finally got cut and decided that football really wasn't what I wanted to focus on. And so I went back to school and, and got my master's degree. And uh, that was in just business administration. They didn't quite have the entrepreneurship focus yet. They were developing that. I sure wish they did. But at the end of the day, I got a general MBA. I got started working as a franchise consultant, the youngest franchise consultant that Jimmy John's had ever hired. So I had about 25 to 30 stores across Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa, um, and, and uh, sorry, Arkansas. And so I got to travel around, and I did that for about a year and said, uh, you know, what's my next step? And, and sat down with the, the guy that I was reporting to, and he's like, well, you know, man, you got to put your time in. You know, you're you're ranked as one of the top business consultants in the company, but you're the youngest. And so you're gonna have to put your time in. So he received my two weeks uh, about a week later and I left there and went to a startup company. So went from a huge company to a uh, huge growing company to a three person company in a completely different industry. And naturally uh, I was in sales. And so picking up the phone and, and making calls and uh, had some success there, went on to a, a more, uh, you know, I'd say what I thought was safe job, uh, after that, got married and 15 months in. So fast forward to December of 2017. So six years ago, uh, you know, I got fired, you know, private equity firm bought the company, laid off the whole sales team. So uh, that's when I decided to uh, kind of get started on my own and got into real estate and, and started my own sales consulting company. You know, at the time I had a buddy who I had bought some homes from, you know, and I was doing some renovations myself. And he said, look, I, I just landed a $50 million fund, uh, you know, that that's buying single family homes and, and my head of acquisitions, you know, just took off. And so we'd really like for you to come on board. So I launched a sales consulting company. I had three full-time clients on that side and I was doing 10 to 12 transactions a month, ended up doing 265 transactions for the fund and was a, was, was a, the sixth group in the country to go through a core vest portfolio refinance. So what does that mean? Well, we bought all these deals cash and we renovated them and we rented them out and then we refinanced them all with a non-recourse loan um, backed by the government, uh, which was awesome because that was a new product that they had uh, for that. 
uh, returned about 85% of the investor capital and still was cash flowing. And so that got me really interested in the syndication structure and uh, figuring out how to do that on a larger scale, because I saw the complexity that was involved with single family homes, right? It's 265 doors, 265 roofs, uh, multiple HVAC systems, you know, all the different things. And so I went back down the educational rabbit hole and uh, decided that commercial real estate, multifamily and shopping centers was going to be what I wanted to focus on. So as a practitioner, I said, I need to be able to understand this asset class, uh, both of these asset classes. And I started doing brokerage for these types of transactions. And I found a niche. I'm a big believer in a moat and, um, you know, Berkshire Hathaway's kind of methodology around investing. What, what kind of moat can you build around that, you know, you have an offer to the marketplace that it'd be so, you know, to say no would be stupid, right? And that's what I tried to figure out. And I looked at the commercial real estate brokerage world and I said, well, nobody's working with buyers, specifically 1031 exchange buyers on a regular basis. And so I created a process. I called that the buyer's representation success system. And I built that out and I outsold a medium-sized brokerage uh, by myself uh, for two years running. And uh, so I had some success there and decided that it was time for me to purchase my own real estate. And, you know, being a young man, I still am young, but I was much younger then and dumber then. I had the Midas touch. Everything that I had touched turned to gold. So why, why would it be any different buying historic readaptive use projects and doing complete renovations and all these different things? And so ended up losing a quarter of a million dollars on a couple deals that I, I did myself. And I sat down and, and really said, okay, uh, where'd I go wrong? Well, I went wrong in a few different ways. I got outside of my circle of competency. You know, that's another mental model from Charlie Munger. And I got too busy. And uh, so I found a team. I started to look at this industry as a business and said, if I want to scale up a business, I need a team with complementary skill sets. And so it was up to me to figure out what that looked like. And so I went out and found a couple partners. This is fast forwarding to 2019. And we started to purchase our own multifamily projects. Going into COVID of 2020, $35 million of neighborhood retail shopping centers under contract. And then March 18th or whatever the official date was, I can't remember now, you know, COVID happens and we're shutting down economies and industries and uh, no idea what the debt markets are going to look like for uh, retail. So we stepped out of retail. We were able to refocus. People couldn't fly. So what did we do? Well, there were still deals on the market. People still wanted to transact. This was a very new situation that people were trying to navigate, created a lot of uncertainty for people. And so during that uncertainty, we had two things happen. Prices dropped dramatically. If you remember, there was a huge trough in prices. And then debt also dropped substantially. And so that was a really great buying opportunity. It's probably a window of about four to six months. We are able to purchase about 1,500 multifamily units during that time. So we've been growing that portfolio and managing that portfolio uh, and, and, and doing a lot of renovations on that portfolio. Uh, the last 18 months, we have stepped back into the commercial space and added about 600,000 square feet of commercial space across industrial, office, and neighborhood retail. Um, and, and we have started our own commercial real estate brokerage. Uh, two years ago, uh, we started that. And we focus on the $1 to $5 million transactions we focus on 1031 exchanges and facilitating off-market transactions. Many times in 2022, we had more listings, and I'll call them listings, but we had more off-market opportunities on our database that we have built out and our platform that we've built out than LoopNet uh, had available. 
And that's because we had a lot of relationships. And so we were able to continue to transact off market and pair up buyers and sellers. And so we have a unique value proposition in that business that I'm happy to speak to here. Um, but that's kind of the the background and how I got to where we're at now. The main focus, you know, currently is looking at the deals that we bought in 2019 and 2020, seeing where we're at and making some successful dispositions. We fixed rate all of our, our debt. And so we are sitting on a position where most of our debt is below 4% on these deals and they are assumable loans. And so we are selling, for example, selling one project in Des Moines, Iowa, 120 unit multifamily class B um, built in 2014 for 4.39% cap rate. And uh, the historical cap rate in that market is is about 6.6%. And so um, we are going through dispositions right now. We are continuing to add slowly the right neighborhood retail assets into our portfolio. And then there's a main focus right now, too, on growing the brokerage in a systematic way to continue to help facilitate these deal-making kind of uh, transactions that I'm speaking about. Yeah, no, that was definitely... Uh, great walkthrough of, you know, where you started and how you got here. So let's dive in to start at least definitely a lot to unpack, but to start yeah. what, like you said, like what's your value proposition at your brokerage, what really sets you apart and how, like you said, we're able to have more listings than even the commercial guys like LoopNet and Crexy. I think active listening is extremely important. And when enough people, smart people are saying you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, and that's dumb, or you're going to waste your time. There's typically something there to unpack. And if you are willing to continue to persevere through those conversations, you can usually mine for gold. And one of my favorite stories is the six feet from gold, right? So a guy goes out you know, in San Francisco, he's looking for gold, and he's been battling and digging for months on end. And you know, finally, he runs out of money, runs out of hope and he just gives up sells the land to someone they show up the next day they dig and they find the gold the gold mine right and so that's kind of the approach that i take on the brokerage side and so working with buyers i have found that typically there are a couple pain points one they may have inherited a property that they want to sell and then they go to sell and start talking to their financial advisors and and their team, and they say, well, you're going to have a big tax liability here. Well, what are my options? A 1031 exchange. Well, what the heck is that? Okay, so now they start to learn about that. Then they say, okay, well, where should I look at to, to invest in? How can I be an investor and, and purchase a property? And the Midwest, Kansas City specifically, has really shown to be a, a good place for cash flow and for uh, appreciation over the long term. And there's a lot of good things happening. So it's been hitting on a lot of different lists, which is getting people excited about this area. But if you're in California, what do you know about Kansas City? What do you know about the Midwest? This is a flyover state, right? I mean, you legitimately probably don't even know where Kansas City is. It's in Missouri. It's not in Kansas. I'll tell you that. There is a Kansas City, Kansas, but it's not the same as Kansas City, Missouri. Now, Taylor Swift and Patrick Mahomes are all you know helping to get Kansas City on the map a little bit. But from a real estate perspective, standpoint there's a lot of things going on in a development standpoint job growth you know population growth lots of uh, affordability still here in the states here um, and so we have basically positioned ourselves as a market leader to say if you are needing a more than a real estate broker you need successful team 
to implement a transaction, whether that be a general contractor, a property manager, a lender, insurance, attorney, we have all of those resources for you. And you're able to tap into our referral network to help get one deal done. We do not charge for any of that. I have long thought about a subscription model because there's definitely a lot of service components in what we do instead of just pairing up a buyer and a seller to get a successful transaction done. Most of the time, a buyer comes, they search you know, online, they're talking to a broker, and then they need to be able to bring all of those people to the, to the table. We've created a process where we actually look at transactions that have been completed very soon, you know, very recently, and say, look, here's what the market is. Here's where the debt's going to be. Here's five lenders. Here's a deal that got closed last week, yesterday, whatever the day is. Here's what you can expect. And so trying to think through all of the objections and or challenges before we get there and before we start working with someone. So I've put together kind of a five-step sales process that helps people weed out of this funnel early on. As if they're not going to get through and they're not willing to go through those steps, we're probably not going to be able to consummate a trans transaction. But if they do get through those steps, guess what? I mean, my time's valuable. My team's time's valuable. So is yours. Let's all share in that together and so see if we can create something successful. Um, and so that's kind of what we've done. On the seller side, we have gone to them and said, here is a 21-day program where if you provide us access to the property so we can get pictures, 3D photos, Matterport, everything that we need, drone, to really understand it. You can get us the financials. You can give us a CapEx list. Give me 21 days and see what I can bring you. And a lot of times in that 21 days, we will either see that, one, their pricing expectations are way off. And to get something that they might need you know, from a pricing standpoint, we might have to list that property. Or two, we might bring some offers that are close to it, and that really starts to anchor them in the right way. If somebody comes to me and I think the property's worth $70,000 a door and they want $120,000 a door, I'm not messing with that. We're not going, that's not the right fit for me. I'm not going to spin my wheels listing something, trying to get something out there that's never going to appraise, we're never going to find a buyer for. And so it's really managing those expectations up front with the sellers and then bringing a qualified list of investors that have been through a five-step sales process on the buy side Typically, we've transacted with them before to say, here's a, here's a qualified opportunity. Now that we've done over 250 transactions, it's really interesting to see the referral network that has been created and the trust levels that are there. Because we're no longer looked at a paper as a paper pusher or someone who is just in it to get a transaction done and make a commission, right? Most of my clients... I either sold them the property four years ago, five years ago, whatever it was, and they are coming to me to list the property or um, looking for an evaluation of an opinion of value. And so I think that that's kind of our, our marketplace. Most of the times, one to five million dollar transactions also do not get the attention that maybe a larger one would, right? And so working with buyers, a lot of brokers just will not do it. They will just say, you are a tire kicker. I'm not going to invest my time in you. And I don't see value in this. We've tried to take a longer you know, term approach to say, if there's a, a young person out there that is putting together a deal and they're 30, you know, 25, 30 years old, whatever it is, I'm looking at this saying, man, if they're successful, they might be doing this for the next 10 years. There's probably five to six transactions in there you know, on the buy side and the sale side. And so um, that's kind of how we have approached this thing. With sellers, 
a lot of times we have to just weed out sellers really quickly and say, look, I mean, I know you want yesterday's pricing, but the market has changed and here's why. And I know you want $120,000 a door for your property, but debt is no longer 3%, 4%. It's double that in a lot of different aspects. And the confidence level of investors has changed dramatically. There's been a lot of things that have happened since COVID. We have COVID, sure. But then we have you know, the work from home uh, situation going on, which is impacting all asset classes. We have geopolitical risks, not only in Ukraine, but now in Israel. We have an election year coming up. We have the Federal Reserve holding steady, but you know, still at a, a level where they're not saying yet that they're going to cut. We have a lot of prog- prognosticators saying where interest levels are, interest rate levels are going to be. What I've learned about interest rates over the last seven years is, if you can make a deal work now, you know, purchase price is permanent, financing is temporary. And so make something work right now that you feel comfortable with and that you feel like you have stress tested. And in the coming years, if something comes down and you have the ability to refinance, position yourself as a buyer with low prepayment penalties to no prepayment penalties. Just because a bank issues a term sheet to you doesn't mean that's the black and white, right? And you probably have to go to 25 different banks to find the one person and bank that is interested in your specific location, asset class, and business plan. So there's a lot of complexities to that uh, financing side. And on the debt side, that's the biggest piece of your capital stack, typically. And that's your biggest investor in a deal. So you need to treat them like that. And so having the ability to have 25, 30 different relationships to bring to the table there is really important because most of these transactions do not start going to an agency loan, right? If you're one to $5 million, sure, there's some Freddie Mac small balance loans and things like that. But your first time purchaser, those can be difficult to get through. And we're doing a lot of value add projects where uh, it makes more sense for someone to go to a recourse loan and work with a bank to get some construction financing, put that in place, and then at stabilization, go to refinance. So that's kind of our value proposition at Exchange CRE, willing to work with buyers understanding that it's a systematic and holistic process and trying to bring a comprehensive plan and strategy to that and not just turning people away because they might be a first-time investor. Do you find that most of your um, investors are, because it's at the one to maybe $2 million price point, uh, they're retail investors or not necessarily retail, but not retail, com- retail uh, commercial real estate, but um, individuals versus a syndicate. Yeah, we've worked with both. And what I will say is most people that I've worked with start buying real estate um, by themselves and or with family members. And at some point, they either decide, I want to take on the risk of being a syndication structure. Or, you know, I'm not interested in having 50 investors or 10 investors or 20 investors. One thing I, I've put some educational resources around is um, how to vet sponsors, but also working with investors on the active and passive side, because I think I have a unique perspective on this. And so I've put together a quiz, basically, that just says, answer these 15 questions, and it's going to spit out if you should be an active or a passive investor, right? It's not an end-all, be-all, but at least you should be thinking about this. Because I think that while there's a lot of education around it, and um, it sounds great on paper. It's a lot of work. 
it's a lot of work and people are trusting you with investments. And so you better have some infrastructure in place to be able to deal with that. Likely some experience as well. I think that what has happened in the industry is, you know, there's been a lot of books, a lot of uh, masterminds and a lot of groups that kind of get together and say, this is how you do this. And then there could be uh, one leader in the group that says, yeah, I'll be there for you um, 100% of the way. And I think people are now finding, uh, I'm not going to mention names at all because I'm sure it will come out on the real deal at some point. But um, I, you know, I think that a lot of that is, uh, is a challenging structure when things get difficult. And so um, you need to be able to have experience in relationships. Relationships do two things. They bring you opportunities, but maybe more importantly, they help you solve problems. And so this is what I live and, and breathe every single day. But if somebody is just kind of, you know, doing it on the side, I, I wonder if they have the relationships and the experience to try to navigate something as difficult as what we're seeing in the industry right now. So a lot of our, our investors and our clients are 1031 exchange clients that inherited a property and or sold a single family or a duplex in a highly appreciated market and are now looking to uh, transition those funds into something more passive. Um, so they might look for a neighborhood retail shopping center. They may look for a stabilized value, um, you know, value play in regards to a multifamily deal. Um, but, but uh, you know, working with syndications, typically there will be an experienced acquisitions person out there trying to go directly to the property owners. So a lot of times I, I look at kind of acquisitions men and women in the industry for syndications as kind of competition because they're they're going to a seller and saying, hey, I know I'm not, I might not be giving you the highest price, but you don't have to pay a commission here to a broker. And so that actually gets a lot of people interested as sellers. But I do think that there has been a strategy in the industry to get something under contract and then try to do a big retrade, you know, after the inspections. And so Kansas City is the biggest small town and in small city that you'll ever see. Everybody knows everybody. And uh, even though there's, you know, millions of people here in this industry, it's not as big as you think. Uh, it's definitely not a Texas or a Florida or, you know, a California in that regards. And there's only so many areas that people really want to own real estate here. And there's only so many owners. And so we've made it our job to try to be there as a resource for those individuals and typically, you know, our, our close rate is close to 90% on transactions. And it's kind of because of that sales process that I have shown. For example, somebody goes, before somebody goes, you know, even puts in a letter of intent on a property, they have already gone through a case study of the underwriting, the lender, talking to a lender, getting approval from them, and then the inspection report that came back from a property. I mock up a whole situation that says, okay, Let's put, in, let's put an experience together here that says you're buying this deal and the inspection report comes back. Here's what it says. How are you handling it? That way, when they actually go under contract for their first property and they get that inspection report back that has everything wrong with the deal, right? That they don't get cold feet and, and close out, uh, you know, and walk away from a transaction. So um, that's kind of the approach that we've taken on, on that front. Thanks. Thanks for that. I know one of the things you mentioned was just the opportunity you took uh, advantage of when like COVID happened and, you know, prices went down and interest rates went down. And then now how you're navigating this different market where people are still holding on to yesterday's price. 
but and interest rates are high. How do you get ahead of these market trends, like historically, um, even today? And what's been the one that surprised you the most so far? Remember one thing, infinite patience produces immediate results, not just in investing, but in life in general. I had a mentor tell me that real estate deals are like the local bus. There's another one every 10 minutes. You got to be in the way of the bus, right? You got to be at the bus stop. You got to be there to see if, if you want to get on or not. So you have to stay active in that. However, the only way I, I read a lot of market reports and uh, data, I love it. I love, uh, I love diving into that stuff to try to see trends. However, those are typically reverse looking. So they're looking out the rear, your, the rear view mirror. I've got to be looking through the windshield. And the only way I know how to do that is to be out there active in my markets that I'm working at. So talking to property owners, talking to buyers, talking to lenders, insurance, all those different components. Excuse me. So I think that navigating it means having conversations like this, um, putting out content on LinkedIn and having people comment on it, connecting with 15 to 20 people a week, um, meeting with my team who is talking to 50 to 100 property owners every single week, going to our investment committee, seeing what's on the market, seeing what things are trading at from a cap rate standpoint, meeting with the other brokers at uh, the private clubs, meeting, meeting all these different people to create what I call kind of a comprehensive uh, approach and, and view of what's going on. And I think that's valuable to our clients, right? It's like if somebody talks to me, I mean, we could probably talk 45 minutes just about Kansas City alone. But uh, when it starts to when we start to talk about trends and forecasting and, and looking at where things might go, I'm, I'm usually the one that kind of is looking at the bigger picture and how that's going to impact the local markets. And what I mean by that is simply understanding all of the different economic markers that we need to be thinking through to make informed decisions. When I was starting out as an acquisitions guy, I was just pounding the pavement, going and looking at properties, underwriting them, you know, going through the rehab plans, all of those components. Now it's really understanding economics and where things may be at and what's going to actually impact capitalization rates and operational expenses and understanding net operating income and talking to lenders, because that is a huge component of getting real estate transactions done. And so I think that for me, the biggest one that kind of surprised me, I think this year was the fact that multifamily, while still in favor in a lot of people's eyes, people are starting to come to the realization that, you know, you can't just, you can't just bank on the greater fool's theory, meaning let me buy something and a couple of years later, hopefully sell it at a higher price and not do anything to the property, right? I think that's that's the biggest, that, that is one of the biggest things that I've, I've really um, noticed this year. And I remember on that Des Moines deal, because I fixed the interest rate at 3.67% for 10 years. I had a large private equity company from New York City. Everybody would know the name that did that deal with us. And they came to us and said, hey, guys, we, we really appreciate your prudence in looking at mitigating the risk on the debt side, but we think you should float this rate. 16 months into that deal, I got a message from their head of acquisitions and excuse my language, but he said, you guys look like effing geniuses. And 
I, I, I messaged him back and, and just said, no, we're not effing geniuses. But that was one component of a real estate transaction that we could control to try to mitigate risk. And the deal really worked at that level. So going down to 3%, floating it for a little bit. And now what would it be? I don't know, six, seven, eight percent more than double, likely. That was something that we could mitigate the risk on. So I think that evaluating trends is is fine. And I think that during COVID, there were a lot of trends that have been exacerbated that were already happening pre-COVID. Whether that be the move out of downtowns to suburban areas, whether that be the move to more affordable markets, um, you know, other things like that. But one one component that has really blown up the industry this year, and that really surprised me, insurance costs. Not a sexy topic to talk about, right? However, I remember four years ago, underwriting transactions at $400 annual per door on insurance costs. In many markets, that's above $1,200 per unit now. That's a 3X change. And I know rents went up. I do. I understand that. But they did not go up 300%, right? And I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that rents went up 12 to 17% year over year. So we did not hit that. And that is a really big challenge because the insurance market, as Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett would tell you, is a very complex one. And when you have large service providers stepping out completely, that's going to be a big disruption. And so you have to have insurance and the lender is going to require that you have insurance. And so that, that was a big surprise for me um, this year. And that killed a lot of, of potential transactions because on your T12, you see that $400, $500 per unit. But when you go talk to your insurance agent, broker and they come back to you at 1100 bucks. How do you make that work? How do you make that how do you make that pencil? That is a fixed cost that you have to endure on a regular basis. So there were things like that. Um the other one being HVAC costs. I don't, you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, HVAC costs went up 27, 30%. So to put in a new, you know, heating and, and cooling agent in in your units went up substantially. You know, that's just another one. Um labor costs. That's another cost that we had that went through the roof and has been really difficult to manage as an operator myself. So I think some of the operational costs um, and the insurance things that uh, I spoke about have been some of the bigger, you know, kind of surprises um, this year. And then I would say that the last trend that I've really uh, started to see was, okay, well, when multifamily comes out of favor, guess what? Multiple, many people start looking at other asset classes, right? And, uh, when the Wall Street Journal starts to uh, write about specific asset classes, they're typically, you know, six to nine months behind, but they want that data that I mentioned previously to validate what they're writing. They can't make, you know, they can have an opinion on things, but um, if they're going to write something about commercial real estate, they want to have data that backs it up. And so they started to write about neighborhood retail being the darling of the commercial real estate industry. And I mean, I remember a couple of years back just uh, shouting from the rooftops about this, but you know, talking to a lot of my tech investors saying, you know, e-commerce is going to take over the world. What are you doing buying, you know, retail shopping centers? And uh, that trend has not proven out. 86% of all retail transactions still happen in brick and sticks. And you know, it's a $6.1 trillion market. Um, and the retail sales this, this last November were very strong for people. Well, what's propping that up? 
uh, okay, so you look at supply and demand for sure. You know, we have been around 40 million square feet for quite some time. Uh, but what, what has been built? It's been uh, on the land that you would want to put this. It's been multifamily. Okay, so you have that component of it. Uh, but then you also have the strong consumer that has propped up retail prices. So I'm not unaware of that, obviously. You know, you have to track M2 and uh, make sure that you understand what people's savings are and what they're spending on. They may not be spending on goods as much as they were, but they are spending on services. And so experiential real estate, exper experiential retail, service-based e-commerce resistant tenants are thriving. Think your chiropractors, your dentists, your physical therapy, restaurants, hair salons, financial advisors, banks. Those are all really doing a, a really great job. Uh, pet grooming, veterinarian clinics, uh, dance studios, uh, martial arts. I can keep going and going, but those are the type of of tenants that have really shown to be very resilient over the last couple of years. And so that was another big trend that I've started to see in my conversations with retail investors. Uh, and I mean, retail meaning just one, you know, single investors, accredited investors. I think people are starting to look at different asset classes, whether that be flex industrial retail, mobile home parks. I think cell storage has sort of fallen out of favor just a little bit uh, just because of, the enormous amount of supply that has come online with that and people cutting costs. You know, I think people are like, well, I haven't been to that self-storage unit for two years. Do I really need anything that's in there? Um, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to like about self-storage. Don't get me wrong. I love the dynamic pricing models. I love all these different components, but uh, you know, you really have to have a strong demand for it in the areas that you're at because you have, you know, metal buildings with garage doors, right? So people don't live there just something to think about. So those are some of the things that, that have really kind of surprised me this year and, and um, you know, have me thinking really deeply about our investment thesis going into next year as well. Uh, I'm going to hop off for a call here real quick. Uh, I'll be right back. Uh, and then I'll have, before we send this out, obviously cut this part out, but one question for you, uh, Logan is, and I'll be right back. But if you want to start with this one is, for our investors who are listening, people want to get into the industry, start building those relationships with brokers. What are some things you would recommend they do and some things you recommend they don't do? It's an excellent question. And frankly, I, I've, I've come to, a, a, I think, a formula that would work really well for a, a new investor. One, you have to commit to time. You have to commit to time building the relationship. And if you don't know how to build relationships, there's some really good books on that. However, outside of that, coming with a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish, I think is the number one important rule to remember. So what does that look like? That looks like a one-page sheet that has a deal that is in the market with the broker that, that you're looking to build a relationship with that has already closed and say, you know, I was looking at this project. Here's my underwriting. Here's the deal. Here's what I liked about it. Here's what I had some concerns on. But this is the exact type of product that I am I'm, I'm looking to target. You need to make it really easy for the commercial real estate broker to understand your vision and what you're trying to accomplish. And to do that with something tangible shows a couple things. One, that you're, you're willing to put the time in to create that document. Make it look professional. Go on Fiverr.com and have somebody spruce it up for you. Two, you understand the market. And you're not just calling and saying, hey, where should I invest in Kansas City? You should say, hey, there are six different submarkets that I have interest in, and here's why. That should be on your sheet. 
And then look and then talk about your structure. You know, are you going through a 1031 exchange? Will this be your first transaction? Are you going to be raising equity from friends and family? Have you had conversations with them? Who have you talked with on the debt side of this? Have you talked with any property managers? And if you have all of those things lined out in a one-page sheet, as well as a uh, idea of the property that you're looking to acquire, that's going to tell somebody that you're serious because there's a quick sniff test from brokers that want to know one thing. Are you going to waste my time? And if you can showcase that you've done the work before you have that first conversation with them, I think that's going to go very far in being able to build that relationship with someone and start to actually get the deal flow that you're looking for. That's great. Thank you for that. Uh, is it true that, um, because I've worked with some brokers in the past and um, they've all said either, uh, it sounds like there are you know, quote unquote pocket listings, like listings that are not true listings. Um, do all brokers have those or do most brokers just rely on the loop nuts and other uh, type of online marketplaces? Yeah, many brokers do not even utilize those online marketplaces for a few reasons. One, their value prop to the seller is we're going to bring you a buyer list of 8,000 individuals and companies that we have had contact with over the last 10 years. Out of those 8,000, we think we can get you 500 looks at this deal. Out of that 500, we think we can get you 100 LOIs. Out of those 100 LOIs, we think we can get you 25 offers, right? And they want to control that process. They they have control uh, is a really important facet for brokers because their relationship lies with the seller and they have to do their job of picking the most able and willing buyer for that deal so they don't lose face with that seller. So as a buyer and you're talking to brokers, try to put yourself in their shoes and speak to the concerns and fear that they may have uh, as, as, as they might be thinking about working with you. Now, that being said, most of the best brokers out there will have pocket listings, and that is in a couple different categories. Legitimately, a client that said, hey, I'm going to list this in six months and you can get the first look at it, right? Hey, uh, the team is already working on a listing agreement. We already have some information about it. We know that this seller is going to sell this and list this at some point, but if we could bring this price before we have to market it, that, that is one. The other one is a true pocket listing that you have a broker that has talked with a seller and presented them with a 21-day program that if you bring a willing and able buyer, they will sell the property for you. Typically, that would be uh, that would look like the broker actually has an agreement with that seller that uh, they can't sell it to somebody else during that period of time, and you do have a true pocket listing. The third is new and uh, inexperienced brokers um, saying that you know they've talked to a property owner and they you know the property owner said yeah you know I'd sell this deal for fifteen million dollars bring me a buyer that could be the third level right so I think that as as you think about pocket listings there is different levels of those pocket listings and one way you can flesh this out as a buyer is to just ask you know why is the property owner selling how long have you known them what what are they looking to accomplish have you transacted with them in the past. What's their time frame for looking to exit this property? And through that and through the, those conversations and those questions, you'll start to feel if they're in the first, second, or third tier of what that pocket listing looks like. I'm very open on that front and say, look, we have 15 pocket listings and they are all on an online marketplace that if you go through our sales process, you will get access to, right? So I'm just very forthright with that. 
Um, and then obviously we have the folks that we have transacted with in the past that know that that is on there and they're already looking at those transactions. But I don't just open that up for anybody and everybody because that would that would put me in a position that just says, you know, um, none of these buyers have been vetted. And so if I do bring an offer, I don't know if they're actually going to transact or not. So I try to get ahead of that through that sales process that I mentioned previously. Got it. Okay, that's great. Um, <clears throat> there are some people that um, will not, well, do not wish to go through brokers. And maybe this is this is uh, you starting out. Um, how do you find those listings? Not the listings themselves, obviously they can go on the marketplace, but how do you find those those uh, those quote unquote pocket listings without working through a broker? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a very similar process as as it would be with a um, with working with a broker because your you have to understand what your value proposition to the property owner might be they may just have a vendetta against working with a broker, right? And that might be a great person for you to build a relationship with. However, many times property owners will just say, yeah, you know, uh, I'd be open to selling something, but, um, you know, and, and, and then you have to try to get all the information out of them. And if you haven't built the trust level with that person and they send you something, it's very rarely that they actually will send you something. I guess if you nag them enough and don't leave them alone, they may send you something, but, being able to actually get something done from that, you have to be able to build some sort of relationship with that person and have some sort of value proposition that says, look, you know, uh, we can save you $250,000 of brokerage fees if you go through this process. Now, you have to pair that with the market dynamics that's going on right now, because previously, if you listed a property when debt was very low, uh, you know, sellers were getting prices that they didn't even think that would be attainable. Right. And and that was getting done. Now that's shifted a little bit. And so, um, you know, previously it made sense to work with a broker because even if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I want to buy this directly from you. Why would you not go to a broker and then, you know, get something that was, uh, you know, twenty five thousand dollars more unit than than you thought you could get? That's shifted a little bit. Right. So that that creates an opportunity. And where I've seen people be successful going direct to property owners is. Work willing to spend the time with them to understand why they're trying to sell and then trying to figure out something that's creative. They're all going to have hot buttons, whether that be, hey, I just don't want anybody knowing about this thing that it's selling. I don't want my tenants being aggravated. I, I you know, I don't want uh, I don't want a bunch of people. I don't want to sign in the yard, I, all these different things. And, and you and so I put together a document for property owners. It says, here's the top 10 reasons that we have worked with property owners. And it says the top 10 reasons not to sell. And we go through every single one of those objections. So, uh, um, you know, I think that if somebody was willing to do that work and go to a property owner and say, hey, you know, we bought X, Y, and Z, we haven't worked with a broker, and here are the top 10 reasons that you shouldn't work with a broker and that, you know, the, the 10 reasons that you shouldn't sell and you're willing to spend the time with them to get through all of those hurdles, then yeah, I think that's great. You can you can probably find some some opportunities there. However, you know, in a, a really good market like a Kansas City or some other market, you know, you've got 25, 50, 100 brokers trying to do that exact same thing. And so unless you in, unless you have some sort of offer to that property owner that would be so good that it'd be stupid for them to say no, then you're going to struggle uh, with that in a good market like a Kansas City. Uh, I, I have uh, one additional question, which is 1031. So you guys do a lot of 1031 transactions. 
um, I would imagine that is that just talks to bas basically tax um, tax savings down the road or tax savings now and then um, being able to um, defer that. And then also uh, the capital stack, right? You don't have to worry about the capital stack. Um, what Are there any asset classes that benefit uh, from specifically from a 1031 or is it just that, that it's you know, all the, the tax and the capital stack benefits of 1031 that, I, that I, it offers? Yeah, I mean, the, the the rules have changed because you used to be able to sell an airplane and do an exchange into real estate. Can't do that anymore. Has to be a like kind exchange, meaning you need to go from real estate to real estate. The opportunity zones presented a new opportunity for folks to defer capital gains taxes as well and have a step up in basis. It's a whole different conversation. However, the 1031 exchange does not help you in regards to any specific asset class. You can go from multifamily to retail, from retail to mobile home parks, from mobile home parks to self-storage, right? So it doesn't matter as long as it has a real estate component to that. The other benefit is, yes, if you are looking to not have to pay your capital gains tax, you can use those funds to fund a down payment on a larger property. has to be, you know, $1 more from a from a purchase price standpoint, and it has to have the same or more debt on it as well, or you will have what's called boot tax, and you will owe the um, the government money and tax on that uh, exchange. What I've seen people be do as well is if they are a qualified real estate professional, they sort of look at it a different way because if you're doing a 1031 exchange, sometimes the best time to sell is not the best time to buy. And so it can be difficult to not let the tax tail wag the dog, right? The deal dog. And so you don't want to buy a bad deal. So some people, if you're a qualified real estate professional and they're, you know, they, they have the ability to really utilize all of the losses from a depreciation standpoint, they may just take the capital gains tax, go and reinvest that into another deal, do a cost segregation study and try to find a way that they offset a lot of that tax. I've seen that done multiple times. However, most people are not doing the 231 exchange are not qualified real estate professionals. So, um, and there's a lot of nuances with that. You got to prove that, right? 750 hours a year on that front. So um, talk to your tax professional on that before you you decide to do that. However, I think that uh, the benefits being if you take that property to the grave and your inheritance, it's, it's in your inheritance and, and your heirs take over, you know, um, you didn't have to pay the capital gains tax and they won't as well. Right. So now they've got to step up in basis and the money that you would have paid in tax helped to fund a better and or larger project for you through that 1031 exchange. That makes sense. Thanks. Thanks for that. Of course. Uh, Logan, what would you say your, we're going to be coming up on wrapping up here. So like, um, heading out thoughts uh, what would you say your most memorable success was so far whether it's on the brokerage side or the investment side and then your most memorable failure and what did you learn? yeah well i think on the the failure side um you know early on uh being a little bit aggressive with my own money and saying you know i can do anything and everything and it's going to work out I've also realized that that certain asset classes with deep construction components and difficult demographics to manage um, can be a difficult investment. 
Um, if you're going to be in the property management business like I am, you're in the people business, you're in the HR business, and you're dealing with people uh, on a regular basis. And so um, that's a very difficult situation to manage on a regular basis. There are easier ones to manage than others. However, if you're going in and you have this grandiose plan to turn a property around and you have to eliminate crime and you have to uh, do CapEx and renovations, have you thought about break-ins? Have you thought about uh, people not wanting to come to the property to work because their tools get stolen? I mean, all of these different components that I now know that I did not when I first got started. So I think that staying in my circle of competency and ensuring that along every single portion of the business plan, you have an expert who's done it before is extremely important. Uh, on the success side, I think that being able to navigate a difficult market like 2023 and still come out with a successful year because of the collaboration and the specific value proposition that we have to the marketplace was an extreme win for me because there were many times during the year that I talked with my team on just stay in the game, keep adding value and keep putting the reps in. And thankfully we didn't stop mining, right? We didn't stop digging and we hit gold, at least gold for 2023. And so I'm really proud of that because it had been easy to just play golf and uh, take off and just say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up for the year and, and not, uh, and not worry about it. Right. And a lot of people did that, but I look at these types of opportunities as one where you can you can gain market share. So when the going gets tough, you have to get tougher. That's Nassim Tlaib's mentality of anti-fragility. And when it gets tough, you get tougher. And so I've adopted a kind of a mentality or perspective that, you know, obstacles make me stronger. And it, uh, that that has definitely been a theme for 2023 in regards to what we have been able to accomplish. Um, and so if anyone's out there and you're kind of getting demoralized and it's like, man, nothing pencils, I can't make this work, don't give up. You know, if this is something that you're really wanting to do, this is the type of time where people are going to look back five or seven years from now and say, man, sure, I'm glad that I didn't give up then because the moment you do is the moment the market turns and then you've stopped putting in the work and building the relationships with the people that you need to bring opportunities because opportunities do not float out there in thin air. They're always attached to somebody. And I mean, somebody like some person, right? And so if you can continue to persevere through that, I think that there are opportunities to be had. However, you just need to stay very persistent and you have to have a lot of grit and, uh, Angela Duckworth's book on grit, uh, is a fantastic read um, if anyone is looking on how to build that grit. So I think those are kind of my closing thoughts and, and um, you know, ideas around 2024. What does it bring in 2024? Well, if I sat here and told you that I knew, I would tell you to run the other way because there are many people who will tell you exactly what's going to happen and their track records just aren't very good. So I would say that change is inevitable. I would say that what are the things that we do know are going to happen? Well, we have a, an election year and we have geopolitical risks going on. We have a lot of debt as, as the country. We have uh, uh, kind of a tie within Congress. So there's uh, those kind of challenges that we have. 
We have the Federal Reserve and this soft landing that people keep talking about. So educate yourself around all of those components and build the relationships with the individuals that I think will be important for you to have a transaction. And just try to be in a position to make a decision faster. And the only way to do that is through mental models and frameworks and continuing to have conversations with people. But at some point, you're going to have to jump in the water, right? And um, just make sure that if you do that, you've got a life vest on for the first time, right? I, I jump in headfirst a lot and it's worked out, but it's also bit me in the butt a little bit too. And so it's not just about taking massive action anymore. It's, it's about taking strategic massive action and ensuring that you have people around you that have been through it before. Gotcha. Thank you. And then our final question um, before we head into Q&A is how do you give back to your community? Well, I'm very involved with uh, my church here in Kansas City, but I like to try to find ways that uh, I can bring kind of my skill sets in regards to commercial real estate to help other individuals. So I've been involved with a decent amount of organizations, uh, whether that be Catholic Charities or Kim Wilson Housing or Restart, uh, to really work with programs that are trying to help people get on their feet and a steady house, a steady home is extremely important for the family unit. And I think if we are going to have a strong United States, people need to have stable housing. And so we've worked with a lot of homeless organizations that help people with the services that they need to get you know, on their feet and into a safe and, and reliable homestead. Uh, and so I was on the board of directors for Restart for two and a half years. I work with Kim Wilson Housing and Catholic Charities and Save Inc. and all the different housing programs here, and they're always welcome in our properties. And I think that's a, a big uh, opportunity for more landlords and folks like me to to be open to working with those organizations. Gotcha. Well, thanks, Logan. So appreciate the talk that you gave. And to learn more about what it's like to be a commercial real estate brokerage, feel free to reach out to Logan, and we'll put your contact information, you know, as we're uploading this episode. And so appreciate you coming in to speak about your experience as a broker, you know, how investors can build relationships with brokers, how you went from, you know, your humble beginnings to becoming a broker and an investor, both. And a lot of the other lessons you learned, right? I think most recently, the biggest lesson for our audience was to just keep at it, especially yeah. in an environment like this. So really appreciate those tidbits. So yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come speak for audience. And for those of you who are listening at home, don't forget to subscribe and like our podcast wherever you're listening to it to make sure that we can continue bringing you educational content. And until next time, keep learning to invest for generational wealth.